everyone, welcome to November. No more warm weather, no more pontoon rides, no more state fair treats. But the start of November brings us closer to some of the best times of the year. Thanksgiving, my birthday obviously, ABC Family Channel's countdown to Christmas, and tons of fun stuff coming up here at church. A few weeks ago, many of you made the bold move to take a next step in your faith. Some of you joined small groups, many of you signed up to serve, and we are so excited for what's in store for you. If you're still on the fence about taking a next step, that's probably because you're not sure what it is, right? Well, the good news is we can help you figure it out. In your campus lobby, you'll find a designated area where awesome EBC staff and volunteers are ready to help you find your next step. Check it out after the service. Students are a big deal around here. So every Wednesday night, we pull out all the stops to connect them with each other and God. There's awesome music, great teaching, and tons of time to hang with adult leaders and build friendships that can last a lifetime. Students also get to attend retreats, special events, and a mission trip every year. Check out Ground Zero if you're a middle schooler and Revolution if you're a high schooler every Wednesday at your campus. Parents, you can learn more at eaglebrookchurch.com students. This weekend, we are thrilled to welcome Kyle Eidelman, teaching pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Kyle is bringing a great message about how Christ calls us to die to ourselves and find life in Him. Enjoy. Well, it is uh, great to be with you this weekend. I have really grown to respect and admire this church from a distance in Kentucky. Our church in Kentucky and this church have a lot in common, and our leaders in our church and your leaders from your church, we work together in a number of different ways. Uh, one of the things I have loved seeing at this church is that there is a um, God-glorifying commitment to excellence in this place with a spirit of humility. And sometimes it's hard to find that combination. And I just love seeing how God is working here, and um, it's, it's been great to be here this weekend. For my message this morning, I need your help right at the beginning. I need to ask you to be willing, to be open to this idea that maybe you've believed some things to be true for a long time that aren't true at all. You were taught some things early, and those things were repeated often, and you just believed them without really questioning them, and as a result of believing these things that aren't true, you've given them the power of truth in your life. Something doesn't have to be true to have the power of truth. If you believe it, then you end up living by it. And so really to be open to the message that I'm going to give, you have to be open to this idea that maybe you've believed some things to be true that aren't true at all. I want to give you a few insignificant examples that tend to be true for a lot of us. Again, insignificant examples with insignificant consequences, but most of us can relate to these, all right? Some things that we've believed to be true that aren't true. So when you were a kid and your mom wanted you to eat carrots, your mom would say something like this to you, you need to eat carrots because carrots are good for your what? Yeah, carrots are good for your eyes, they're good for your eyesight, your vision. And so, yeah, your mom lied to you. Uh, that's not true. Like, I know that her mom probably lied to her and meant well, but it was just passed along from one generation to the next, just carrot propaganda, that if you eat carrots, it'll improve your eyesight, it's good for your eyesight, but that's, it's not true. I'm here to set you free from the lie of carrots this morning. But, but here's what I know. I know human nature being what it is, there are a lot of you right now as I'm saying this, that carrots aren't necessarily good for your eyesight. A lot of you are, are like thinking, uh, yeah, they are. No, they're not. They're not. You were taught that early, 
it was repeated often, and so we've lived our life by this lie. Insignificant example, but it's one that most of us can relate to. Here's another one, all right? When you were young, um, chances are your mom had a rule that went like this. After you ate, you couldn't go swimming for a certain amount of time, right? So how many of you had this rule? Okay, so how many of you had moms that loved you? Okay, I see your hands, yeah. So they, they would say anywhere from, I don't know, five minutes to 30 minutes, you can't swim after eating because it's dangerous to go swimming after you eat. Except for that, it's not, right? Like that's what was probably taught to her, so that's what she taught you, but actually... Research would say that it's more dangerous to swim when you're hungry than it is to swim right after eating. It's not, it's not true, but it's, it's going to be hard for some of you to accept that. In fact, even though you might believe it, even though you might go home and do the research yourself, there's just part of you that will still feel like you've got to be a part of perpetuating this. Like, you're still going to do it. You're still going to make your kids eat carrots, and, and then you're going to make them wait by the side of the pool after eating the carrots. And then you're going to tell them, you know, you can't pop your knuckles because it causes arthritis, and you don't swallow your gum because it takes seven years to digest, and you're just going to keep <laughs> instilling these lies in them because we were taught some things early, and they were repeated often, and so we just accepted them. And those are insignificant examples with insignificant consequences. But here's what I want us to think about. Is it possible that maybe we've believed some more significant lies? Is it possible maybe we've just gone along with some more significant things that aren't true, but we've given them the power of truth in our life? See, when Jesus came on the scene as a rabbi, as a teacher, he was oftentimes presenting truth that was contrary to what most people would commonly accept. If you just read through the Gospels and look at it through this lens, you'll find that much of the teaching of Christ was countercultural, yes, but also counterintuitive. It just goes against what feels right to us. And if you're going to be open to the teachings of Jesus, then you've got to be open to this idea that maybe some things that were taught to us early and some things that have been repeated often, maybe those things aren't true at all. And so if you look at the very first sermon that Jesus preached that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And with this Sermon on the Mount, he brings the kingdom of heaven and he contrasts it with the kingdom of this world. And he takes a lot of things that we believed to be true about life and happiness for a long time, and he just turns those things upside down. Before we kind of look at a verse in that Sermon on the Mount, I want to give you some important context. It matters where he preached this. Jesus preached this message from some mountains, some hills just above the Sea of Galilee. What makes that significant is that this is an area that was known for rebels, for revolutionaries. And people would come and they would have a revolutionary message. And they would give it from the safety of these mountains. Oftentimes they would hide out in these mountains. Tended to be a very political message. Talking about current events and Roman occupation and such. So Jesus now is preaching from these same mountains. And it's a not so subtle statement that this is a revolution that's coming. That Jesus is a revolutionary But his revolutionary message was different than the others, right? It's not 
political. It wasn't full of current events or talk of the Roman occupation. Instead, he's ushering in an entire new kingdom altogether, the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to contrast the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this world. He's going to give us a completely different set of lenses through which to look at life. And so the very first sentence in that very first sermon recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, I just want us to spend some time unpacking it. It's a very simple verse, but, but it changes things. The verse goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a blessing for those who are poor in spirit. The blessing is that those who are poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. Do you want the kingdom of heaven to be a part of your life? Well, then this is what's required, that you are poor in spirit. When we hear blessed are the poor in spirit, if, if if you're like me, you think, yeah, I like that. I, I agree with that. Blessed are the poor. I'm not really sure what it means, but it sounds very poetic, and I like it. It's like something that you might knit on a pillow and give to an elderly woman in a nursing home. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirits. But what's it, what's it really mean? I mean, even just the first few words, blessed are the poor, should immediately cause us some discomfort. Because it goes against what we've been told since we were young and what has been often repeated. The equation that we've been taught is blessed are the rich. Blessed are the rich in finances. Blessed are the rich in relationships. Blessed are the rich in spirit. Blessed are the... If you go over to a rich person's house and you say, hey, this is a beautiful mansion. The rich person doesn't say, thanks, I'm so rich. The rich person says what? Thanks, I'm so I'm so blessed. See what we do? We just equate riches and blessing. They just go together for us culturally. Jesus comes, and the first thing he says as he introduces the kingdom of heaven is, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what's that mean? Well, blessed are you when you don't have enough. Blessed are you when you're not strong enough. Blessed are you when you can't fix it. Blessed are you when you need help. There's a blessing for you. The kingdom of heaven is for those people. The kingdom of heaven is for the people who realize, I don't have what it takes. The kingdom of heaven is a blessing for the people who take a personal inventory and realize it's zero. Because in that place, Jesus meets us. See, in that place, we come to the end of ourselves, and Jesus meets us there. There's finally room for him to show up. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the, the challenge for a lot of us is we want that blessing, but we, we don't want to have to be poor to get it. So we start looking for some loopholes. How can I be blessed and receive the kingdom of heaven without the whole poor in spirit thing? How, how can I do that? And, and it's just our, I, I guess it's just our human nature, although I think it's especially prevalent, this line of thinking in our Western culture. I mean, we get the fact that rich in spirit isn't probably the right thing, that we can't do it all on our own, but we can do a lot on our own. And we do need God's help, but we're 
doing pretty well and a few more self-help books and a few more seminars and we'll probably get there. So what, what we try to do is we, we, we know we probably shouldn't be rich in spirit, but we don't want to be poor in spirit. What we would prefer is to be middle class in spirit. That's what we like. I just want to be middle class in spirit where I've got this covered and I'm doing pretty well and God, you're welcome to help me. I, mean, I could use some help along the way. We kind of put him in the passenger seat, but we're going to keep a hold of the steering wheel. And in doing so, we miss out on the blessing of God. And the most miserable people I know are the people who want to be middle class in spirit, where they want God in their life, but they don't really want to surrender some things to him. That They want to follow Jesus close enough to get the benefits, but not so close that it requires everything from them. They, they want... Jesus in the car, but they want to drive. It, do, it just doesn't work very well. It's frustrating. It's tiring. And some of you know it because you've been doing it a really long time. A picture of what this looks like um, came to me when I was uh, on an elliptical machine in the gym. If you don't know what an elliptical machine is, it's like a, uh, it's like a treadmill for, for older people. And so I, I'm on this elliptical machine, and I'm looking out the, the window towards the parking lot, and, and this guy pulls up in his car, right? It's a, and he gets out. It's a big guy, little car. It's what we have. And he gets out of the car, and he's got his work clothes on from the office, and he has his gym bag. And I'm like, good for him, right? He's, he's going to come and work out before heading home. He starts coming in, and it's like he remembers something in his car, and he goes to his car, opens the door, reaches in, and he, he grabs a cup from the center console of his car. And he turns around, starts walking back towards the gym for his workout, and I notice it's a blue cup with a red spoon. You all know what that is, blue cup, red spoon? What do we got? What do we have? Don't be ashamed of it. It's a blizzard. It's a blizzard from Dairy Queen. That's what we have happening He's coming in to work out while he finishes his cookie dough blizzard. I, that's what I wanted to believe. He's finishing his cookie dough blizzard on his way into work out. Immediately, I love the guy. I'm like, that is so awesome. And he, he's, he's coming to work out, eating his blizzard. And I started thinking, I wonder if this is what he does. Like, I wonder if this is his workout routine. That he, on his way home from work, says, okay, work is over. Okay, now I need to... Cookie dough blizzard from Dairy Queen. I'm going to work out, then I'm going to go home. If that's his routine, I don't know if it is, but if that's his routine, it's not going to go well for him. Like, he's not going to feel well as he works out, and he's not going to see the benefits he was hoping for. He's going to put the time in in the gym, but if he's going to work out and eat a cookie dough blizzard as he comes in to work out, chances are he's going to get frustrated with working out. And I see this spiritually within the church where we come to church and we worship and we want God to be a part of our lives. And then we get frustrated that we're not seeing the difference that we thought he would make in our lives. But we just keep eating the blizzard. We don't make the connection. That we refuse to surrender some things. That we want both. We want our blizzards and we want to work out. We want to be in the church, but we want to be middle class about it. We, we don't want to be poor in spirit. And it just doesn't tend to work very well. I was uh, visiting with a, a freshman in college who was back on break. And as I was talking to him, I, I asked him how school was going. I didn't know him very well. I said, how's school going? He says, going pretty well. 
He said, while I'm on break, I was hoping I could, I could talk to you for a few minutes. And I said, yeah, you know, actually I have a few minutes right now. Um, let's talk. And he said, well, I wasn't quite prepared, but that's fine. If you can talk, let's talk. So we sit down and we start to talk. I can tell he's a little nervous. And I said, so what do you want to talk about? He said, well, <clears throat> he said, I've been studying scriptures and I've come to the conclusion, he said, that sex before marriage isn't a sin. I'm like, oh, so that's the conclusion you reached? Yeah, I've, I've been studying, I've, I've read some books, I've talked to some other people, and I've just kind of come to the conclusion that that's not a sin. And, and so I said, well, okay, let's look at some passages together. So we looked at Hebrews and Thessalonians, and, and at some point in the conversation, yeah, I think he understands that he's doing some pretty impressive mental gymnastics, you know, to get to this conclusion that he's reached. And, and so he said, well, here's the bottom line. He said, I believe in the Bible. I just don't think it means the same thing for us today as it did for the people then. And this is a kind of a popular false teaching that's floating around our culture these days. It's progressive theology, that we interpret Scripture through the lens of culture. That's how we decide what the Bible teaches. So he would kind of bought into some of this, and we talked more. And I said, look, here's the thing. We could kind of go around in circles about this, but <clears throat> could I, I don't know you very well, but could I, would you give me, this is kind of personal, but would you just let me kind of take a guess about something? And he said, yeah. I said, well... <clears throat> My guess is that you went to college and you got a girlfriend and you're sleeping with your girlfriend. There's kind of silence. And he's like, yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. No, I get it, right? I mean, of course, these things are completely separate and coincidental. Now, how did I know that about him? How did I know that? Because I know me. I know my nature, I know what I oftentimes will revert to in my thinking, where I, I want to follow Jesus, but there's certain areas of my life that I, I, I don't surrender. There's certain blizzards that I just am not ready to give up. But I also know that the more I try to be middle class about it, the more I refuse to go all in, the longer I put that off, the longer I'm putting off his blessing. That there is a blessing for those who are poor in spirit. There's a blessing for those who basically surrender it all over to him. So I was thinking a little bit about what this looks like to be poor in spirit. I mean, what's, a, what's an image of this? And um, the passage of scripture in Luke 7 came to my mind. And in Luke 7, and it's probably a story you've, you've heard before, there's um, a Pharisee, a spiritual leader named Simon, who has Jesus over to his house. Now, Simon didn't really want to do this, but it was part of his religious duty to have a visiting rabbi over for lunch. And so Simon has Jesus come over. Jesus comes in the house, and a traditional hospitable greeting would have been to kiss the hand of your guest, and Simon doesn't do that. It, it would have just been um, a, a very common practice to have the feet of your guests washed, to wash their feet, but the feet of Jesus don't get washed. Simon doesn't do it. He doesn't have one of his servants do it. It would have been especially hospitable if you had a guest over in that day to just anoint their head with a few drops of oil. It's a little unusual for us, but that was just kind of a way of, of expressing a welcome. Jesus doesn't get that either. So he's having lunch at this home of Simon the Pharisee when Luke 7 says that this woman comes in, kind of crashes the party. Verse 37 says that she is a known sinner. It's a polite way of saying a prostitute. 
So you got the picture, right? I mean, here's this religious leader having Jesus at the house with all these distinguished guests, and this prostitute comes in, and she falls at the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't really know what caused her to be so undone by the love and the grace of Jesus. I don't know if she had heard some of his teaching. I don't know if it was the way that he looked at her with value and honor, and she'd never been looked at that way by a man before. I don't know. But she is undone by his love and by his acceptance and by his grace, and she falls at his feet, and she just begins to cry, and the tears roll down her cheek, and they begin to drip onto the feet of Jesus that are dirty because they haven't been washed. And she can see the streaks, and she realizes... They didn't wash his feet. And she can't ask Simon for a towel. And so she lets down her hair and she washes his feet with her tears and she dries his feet with her hair. And she had a little uh, perfume that she would have likely kept around her neck that would have been part of her occupation that she would have used, you know, a drop at a time, a man at a time. And she just takes it and she just pours it all out on the feet of Jesus. Just pours it out. So at the end of the story, you have this moment that would have been shocking, right? Because Jesus, in the end, he rebukes the religious leader. And he blesses the prostitute. Everyone sitting around is in shock. Wait, what, just, what, what did you just do? What happened? He rebuked the religious leader, and he blesses the prostitute. So here's Simon, who's got a great reputation. I mean, you should see his online profile on social media. The followers, the comments, pretty amazing, really. And, and, and Simon has kept the rules, and he's followed the rituals, and he just has the respect. He's got his life together. Simon is rich in spirit, and he really doesn't have much use for Jesus. Meanwhile, here is this woman who is broken and she has nothing and she is bankrupt and she is desperate and she's the one who gets the blessing. Now the question for us as we look at it is, okay, who do I most want to be like in the story? Not who am I most like, who do I most want to be like? Now let's be really honest here. And if we're really honest, I think, I mean, I would say I want both. Like I, I, I want to be rich in spirit. I, I, want, I want people to think I have it all together. I don't want people to know my struggles. I want them to think that I live a pretty perfect life and don't, don't have a lot of challenges because I've made such wise choices. And That's what I want. I, I want that reputation. But I, I also want the blessing of Jesus. I don't want to miss out on that. I want the blessing of Jesus. So, so I want both. I want to be middle class in spirit. But the blessing doesn't go to the middle class. The blessing goes to those who are, who are poor in spirit. And so I just want to give you a couple challenges with this as we finish up. To be poor in spirit, I think it begins with a commitment that says, I'm not going to just try to keep up appearances. And this is tough for us. We like to keep up appearances. We're quite good at it. This is something that we were taught early. It was something that was reinforced often, especially if you grew up in church, that it's not okay to struggle with certain things. It's not okay to be vulnerable. 
that you need to put the walls up and not let anyone else in. You need to lie to yourself as much as possible about what you could use some help with. We're not, we're not good at this. We're not good at being vulnerable. We're good at keeping up appearances. And really, social media has made us experts. I mean, we're just constantly consumed with putting out the best version of ourselves for other people to see. And we look at the comments, and we see their best versions of themselves, and we just feel like we got to keep living up to it, but it's not real. I was thinking it would be so much easier if we were just honest. Like if Facebook was just called, like if it was called facade, it would be a lot easier. If we just said, yeah, I'm going to go post something on my facade. It's not real, but I just want to post something there. Like, okay, cool. At least you're being honest about it. Because I can tell you as a pastor that, that oftentimes people post the exact opposite of what's going on in their life. I'll see a couple post a picture, make comments, date night, I married over my head. And I, I know what's happening in their marriage. I know how they're struggling. I, I see somebody post a picture about kind of this shopping spree and they went out and they bought these shoes. I know that they're in financial distress as a family. But it's like the more they feel that way, the more pressure they feel to keep up appearances. And it's really difficult to be poor in spirit if you are determined to make everybody think that you don't have problems or challenges. It's really hard to be poor in spirit if you won't even be honest with yourself about some of the struggles that you've got. And so I'm learning on this. And I'll start to think that I'm doing okay. Like, I'll start to think, okay, I'm getting a little bit better about not being so preoccupied with appearances. And then something will happen. I'll realize, I just keep sneaking up on me. I was getting ready to speak at a conference not long ago, and when I speak at a conference, when you speak at a conference, they, they, the person introduces you, has a little bio, tells about you, and he had the bio out there in front of me that, you know, says where I preach, and, you know, that there, the, it says in the bio that Kyle preaches in Louisville, Kentucky, the church has more than 20,000 people in attendance, and, and when he introduced me, he said, the church has more than 2,000 people in attendance. So I'm getting ready to preach, I'm like, Dude, you're off by 90%. You missed an entire zero. And, and here's, here's where I'm at, okay? I'm getting ready to preach a message about the end of me while I'm sitting on the front row thinking about how I can correct him without letting people know that I really care. That's, that's a little broken, right? And so it is a, it's a challenge for us. It goes against our nature. It requires us to have a new way of looking at things, a new way of thinking. There's a pastor named Jean LaRue who talks about some of the work he did with a ministry called Love in Action. It's a ministry that helps those who struggle with sexual addiction. And so he went to one of the Love in Action meetings. It was a group of men that sat in this room, and one of the men got up and shared a story. And the man stood up, shared a story, and as he shared a story, he said that he drove by this adult nightclub and he was tempted to go in. And when he said that, a number of hands in the room went up. And Sean says he looked around. He didn't understand why people were raising their hands. But he continued to tell his story. He said he didn't want to, but he parked and he went in. And a number of hands went up. And he told about some of what happened. And a number of hands went up. And he said, when I walked out, I just felt so full of shame. And I just didn't think God could ever love me. Again, and a number of hands went up in the room, and Jean just, I didn't understand. Why are people raising their hands? There are a lot of questions. Why, why are people raising their hands? And afterwards, he was talking to the director of the meeting, and the director of the meeting said, well, here's what you have to understand, is we only have one rule here. 
that no one struggles alone. So if someone else is confessing something that they've struggled with, and you've struggled with it too, then you have to raise your hand when they're confessing it. That's what that is. That's poor in spirit. And if the church is going to receive the blessing of the kingdom of God, then church needs to be a place, not so much of a pointed finger, but of a raised hand. It says, I struggle. I need help. I don't have it all together. The second challenge I'd have for you is to just simply pray a prayer. You don't even have to write this down. You'll remember it. It goes like this. God, help me. That's the prayer. God, help me. Poor in spirit means that I am going to acknowledge my desperation and my dependence on God. Now, I'll just tell you, I am embarrassed. I am embarrassed when I think about how long it took me to pray such a simple prayer. I mean, it's not that I didn't ask God for help and stuff, but it's always putting a lot more time into my plan. And so it's embarrassing to me. I look back. I've been married 20 years. It's embarrassing to me how many years, not weeks, not months, how many years into my marriage until I finally just said, God, I'm not sure what to do with this. I don't know. I don't know what to do as a husband. I don't understand. God, I just need help. I'm embarrassed how long it took me as a father to just get on my knees to start my day and say, God, help me today. So I, I, I want to control. I got three teenagers at home, three teenage girls at home. God, help me, right? I, I, God, I need your help. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So would you please help me? And I've just discovered that there's something really significant that happens when we humble ourselves and we come before God and we just simply pray, God, help me. It makes room for him. He runs into that space. He says, okay, finally. So, so I'm going to get to drive. You're going to let me drive for a few minutes? It's all yours. Um, a few years ago, my son, I do have a son. He's, thank God. I've got a son who's he's 10 now. Uh, at, the t- at the time, he was four. Uh, we were on a, uh, a road trip, not a vacation, but on a road trip as a family. And uh, towards the middle of the night, we had been driving, and we pulled into a hotel to get some sleep. And at the time, my son, as a four-year-old boy, was just really kind of preoccupied with making sure we knew how strong he was. You know, flexing, showing off his muscles, always wanted to carry his own bag everywhere he went. So that's what he was doing on this trip. Every time we would go anywhere, he'd have his backpack full of his stuff, and he'd shoulder that thing, and he, would, he wanted us to see it. But it's the middle of the night, and he woke up, and he was exhausted, but he, you know, he went back to the trunk, and he got his backpack, and he put it over his shoulder, and, and he started walking into the hotel, but he was, you know, you, I was behind him. He was, just, he was just barely making it. He'd stop, take a few more steps, and he'd stop, and finally, he just, he just stopped, dropped his backpack on the ground, and I came up behind him. I'm like, buddy, you've done a great job of carrying this thing on this whole trip. Can I carry this for you? And he said, yes. I grabbed it, and I threw it over my shoulder. I started walking to the hotel, and I realized, oh, he's still back there. <laughs> like, he's still just standing there. So I turned back around, to, and I walked back over, and I said, bud, you want, me to, you want me to give you a ride, too? You want me to carry you, too? He said, yeah, will you carry me, too? Well, yeah, buddy. I'll scoop him up in my arms. I'm, 
I love it. I love that. As a father, he can't carry it. He says, hey, can you carry this? I can't carry it. Yeah, I'll carry your weight. What about me? Can you carry me too? Yeah, I'll carry you too. And as a father, that doesn't feel heavy to me. It feels light. It feels good. I, I want those moments, right? And God, as a father, he comes to us there. He meets us there where we drop the, I can't go anymore. And the longer you put off dropping it, the longer you put off the blessing. The longer you insist on doing it yourself and not asking for help, the longer you put off his strength in your life. And, and you can keep pushing, and you can make it a few more steps, and you can put this thing off a few more weeks, a few more months. You can put it off a few more years. But the longer you put it off, the longer you put off his blessing. And so the invitation is not to be rich, and it's not to be middle class. It is to be poor, to be poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Will you stand with me and let's pray. So God, we do need help with this because um, I got to believe I'm not the only one in this room who has a really hard time asking for help. It just goes against my nature. The whole idea feels like an assault to my pride and I've had to learn the hard way that this is how it works. And so, God, would you help us to just be broken? I, I know that there are people like me here that they, they want a list of things that they need to do to be poor in spirit. But really what you're looking for is surrender. What you're looking for is an acknowledgement not of here's what I'm going to do. But, God, here's what I need you to do for me. So, God, would you just give us this image um, right now, of us dropping something, dropping a weight that we've been carrying, a struggle that we've been carrying, a temptation that we've kept to ourselves, a relational, um, some relational brokenness that nobody knows about, would you just kind of give us the image right now of dropping that to the ground and asking you to pick it up? And God, would you pick us up too? And would you carry us as well? I pray that we would experience the blessing that comes to the broken. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks you all for having me. You're dismissed.